Good afternoon and welcome to the 178th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of the COVID-19 crisis in France with Olivier Bouraz and Patrick Castell, authors of the new book, COVID-19, An Organizational Crisis. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 1st, 2020, there are 1,475,851 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 13,653,957 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States, and there are now a total of 269,667 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 267,635 reported yesterday, over 2,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Paris Neighborhood Honors 92-Year-Old Holocaust Survivor Who Died After COVID-19 Bout. This appeared in Public Radio International's program, The World, September 2nd, by Rebecca Rossman. La Chouteau Landon is a quiet, nondescript brasserie in the 10th arrondissement of Paris, steps away from the Gare de l'Est railway terminal. Not much about the black and red interior stands out, but the cafe has kept a steady clientele of regulars for decades, many of whom are older people. In April, it lost one of its favorite regulars, a 92-year-old man named Eugene Deutsch, who had survived the Holocaust, then about with COVID-19. Deutsch was a neighborhood figure known for making the daily rounds at the local cafes and bakeries. He would have his morning coffee at Le Chateau Landon, followed by an afternoon Côte de Rhone wine at the neighboring Le Cristal. In between, he would buy himself a fresh baguette, always bien cuit or well done. But when France went into lockdown in mid-March, this routine was upended. Deutsch's health quickly deteriorated. Philippe, the cafe's owner, says that once the lockdown took effect, Deutsch lost his taste for life. It's something he's seen happen to many older people in the neighborhood. Older people aren't necessarily dying of COVID-19, but in a way they're dying because of it, he said. Deutsch was hospitalized shortly after the lockdown took effect. Neighbors say that he was diagnosed with COVID-19, but recovered and went home. He died a few weeks later from an unrelated health issue. He had lived in the same building for more than six decades. James Smirthwaite was one of Deutsch's neighbors. Imagine spending years, spending 62 years somewhere, and when you leave, it's met with complete silence. Imagine spending those years, when you leave, it's met with complete 
silence. Let me take that again. Imagine spending 62 years somewhere, and when you leave, it's met with complete silence, Smurthwaite says. While they rarely exchanged more than simple pleasantries, Smurthwaite says he was deeply touched by Deutsch and wanted to do something to honor his memory. In late April, he attached an obituary to a tree in front of their building. Deutsch was generally reserved and didn't talk much about his personal life, but here's what Smurthwaite was able to share. Eugene Deutsch was born in Hungary in 1928. When he was a boy, he was sent to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany, something he never spoke about after the war. In the 1950s, he settled in Paris, where he worked as a security guard at a department store. Deutsch never married or had children, but he enjoyed being around others. Smurthwaite says that above all, Deutsch loved being outside and used to walk for miles every day. Smurthwaite hopes those reading the dedication he posted will spare a thought for the many older people now stuck inside and who, like Deutsch, may never see a world post-COVID-19. With COVID-19, this generation will know only their last days in this context, and I think that's devastating, Smurthwaite says. Back at the cafe, the owner, Philippe, who only goes by his first name, grabs a teeny tiny wine glass he keeps on a shelf behind the bar. It's so small they don't actually make this kind of glass anymore, but he kept it for Deutsch. And now this glass is sad, he says. It's a small souvenir of someone who I miss dearly, someone who was a pillar of the neighborhood. Okay, I'm really pleased to introduce my guest today. Let's turn to our conversation. Olivier Bourras is a CNRS research professor at Sciences Po in Paris. He is the director of the Center for the Sociology of Organizations, the CSO, a leading research center in sociology in France. His work focuses on risk governance and more recently, emergency preparedness. He's published several papers on simulation exercises in the French nuclear sector and is currently working on volcano alerts in the French Antilles. Patrick Castell is a FNSP research professor also at Sciences Po and the CSO. He is interested in health policies in general and the organization of research in cancer treatments. His research sits at the crossroads of the sociologies of organizations, decision, and professions. Olivier and Patrick, thank you so much for staying up late and joining me on COVID calls today. Thank you. Thank you. I like to start the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling from. And if you're both in Paris, maybe you will even tell us a little bit about what part of Paris you're in and tell us where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Olivier, may I start with you, please? Yes, yes. So I'm, uh, so we're, we're actually, we're both living in the suburbs of Paris, close suburbs of Paris. So I'm living in Ivry-sur-Seine, which is in the southeast of Paris. And Patrick is, is living in north of Paris, uh, Pantin, which is north of Paris. So, uh, so yes, and, and we, well, actually, we've been locked down now since October 28th. So this is the second lockdown after the one we had in for March to, to May. Uh, and um, well, this time it's it's a bit lighter. It's a bit easier than than, than the, the first uh, lockdown. Uh, schools are, are open. As of last Saturday, actually, also the, the stores, uh, non-essential stores, have, have reopened. Uh, as have churches also. Uh, but there's a current debate about the number, maximum number of people that can go to church. Mm. Uh, ski resorts have reopened, but not ski lifts. So that's that should be fun. <laughs> huh. 
Um, and but for the rest, I mean, bars, restaurants, museums uh, are still closed. And we still need authorizations to go outside, but we are allowed now to go out for three hours a day, uh, up to 20 kilometers away from our houses. So, so that's 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 the way we're uh, uh, we've been living for the moment. Um, and many people still work from home. I think that's that's uh, a bit similar to the spring, but there are still much more people and more, more cars in the streets. Spring was very quiet. I think as, as it was in many other places that were locked down. Now it's much more noisier. Uh, people are more stressed, also I find, uh, and it's uh, so it's it's a different atmosphere than it was in the, in the in the springtime. And we That's still it. have police controls everywhere, uh, and uh, masks are still compulsory. Mm. Patrick, you want to add something? No, no, it's, uh, it's okay. The, the, the big difference, and we come back later, is the uh, opening of the schools. It's, schools remain open, and it changed a lot about. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, how workers can work at home and for uh, mm. stress of uh, of children also it is it's it's easy, a bit easier this time so the schools are open now but they were closed in your earlier lockdown phase yes yes mm -hmm. which meant people had to work from home at the same time school their kids from home which was quite challenging for for, for many parents as I, I think it must be in the U.S. and parts of the U.S. where schools are still closed. Absolutely. Well, here where I am in New Jersey, they tried every different sort of hybrid method, going back certain days of the week, one week on, one week off. It feels like these uh, experiments are happening all over the, the world right now. Let me just ask you a little follow-up. I mean, what's happening at the university? Have you been able to go in? Are students able to come into campus? No, university is closed. University, uh, so, so you, and. Sciences Po is a special university, so actually they had anticipated the, the, the second wave. So we, we I switched to distance learning uh, this, this year uh, for most of the students. But the rest of the French universities uh, initially reopened uh, to students physically uh, present in, in, in universities. But then since October 28, they, they've been closed and universities should reopen only early February if everything goes well. So it's all, all distance learning for the moment, which is quite hard for many, many students, French students in, in, in universities. In the United States, there's not a... Follow-up, are also closed, but I've managed uh, to, to reopen them. So this week, for the first time, we'll be able to go two weeks, uh, two days a week, uh, back to our offices to, to, to work this. And I think it was very important for the researchers, but it was mostly important for the PhD students, candidates. Right. They've been suffering a lot from working from home and, uh, and being isolated. So they really want to be able to go back to the office. So this week we'll be able to go back. Okay, that's interesting. And I, I, do, I was gonna ask you about this because the, you know, in the United States, we don't have centralized education policies. So state by state, even university by university, they've been coming up with their own policies and with wild variability and variability of results. Is that different in France? Is the policies around what the universities can do have been more centralized or are they actually allowed to make their own decisions? I mean, the lockdown has been, I mean, the, the closure has been, it's a centralized decision. Uh, the way that universities uh, organize themselves is, is left to each university. Sciences Po is a, is, a separate, is a different type of university. So where, where we are, it's, it's a mix of private and public. So it has a little bit more autonomy. But, uh, but on the whole, yes, it's, it's a centralized system. Well, I want to congratulate you on somehow getting a book out 
uh, in the midst of all of this. And we were chatting just a little bit before we started about the real need for these kinds of books to get out early so that people can um, begin making sense and start, um, you know, we can't wait for this disaster to be over for people to start make, analyzing and make sense of what's, what's happening in the book. Again, the title is COVID-19, An Organizational Crisis. I wondered if you would humor me to start out and just give us a little bit of a background to understand the organizations at play in the pandemic in France, maybe a little bit of a backgrounder on the way your emergency management and your public health systems are organized. And I'll, either one of you take it, I know you work together, so I'll let you answer however you wish. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start. Uh, well, I'm, I'll, I'll very briefly present the way it's organized, but then I, what's really important to have in mind from now, uh, at this point, is that the, the way we handle the crisis is not at all relying on what was uh, uh, what had been planned for. So, I mean, the so emergency management in France is, has been organized since the early 2000s following a series of disasters, accidents, uh, scandals, um, and was basically the, the, the design dates from 2012 around a centralized system around a what we call a, a, a interministerial crisis cell, Salut Intermissel de Crise, which is a command center, which is headed by the prime minister. So not the president, and this is very important. This, it's a prime minister is officially in charge of crisis management, but the, this central, uh, this management cell is positioned at the Ministry of Interior. So this is, this is the, the outfit, and the, the backbone of the system is what we call in French Sécurité Civile, which is actually uh, what the equivalent to your civil defense. And so that, that's the backbone of the French emergency management system. Uh, alongside this, you also have a, a special secretariat directly linked to the prime minister that is in charge of emergency planning and uh, uh, exercise simulation exercises. Hmm. And this secretariat is actually always been in conflict with the Ministry of Interior as to who should own or be in charge of crisis management. Um, and in terms of planning, we have plans for all types of crises, of course, in emergency situations. Uh, the, the pandemic, for pandemics, uh, the first plan was elaborated in 2004, following both the SARS epidemic and also a major heat wave we had in France in 2003, which killed right. 15,000 people, which was that. not a pandemic, but which sort of pointed to flaws in the way we communicated information from hospitals, funeral homes, and local services to the state. There had been, to put it very briefly, the central government missed the, 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 the heat wave, uh, the first few days of the heat wave in 2003, and then noticed that something was wrong after, before a few days. So. First plan, 2004, the plan was revised over and over. And the last, latest version is from 2011, uh, and, which, and it, was, it was modified after the 2009 H1N1 pandemic in France. So that's for emergency management. Health, public health is organized around the Ministry of Health, in particular, a special directorate in the ministry in charge of health, public health. Uh, but this is a very weak uh, directorate uh, compared to the big directorates and Ministry of Health in charge of healthcare. Hmm. Uh, and this directorate also relies on a set of agencies, independent agencies in charge of health safety, uh, drugs, uh, education, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, 
And there's also a wider set of organizations in charge of public health. So this is the general, the general organization. Now what's striking and actually what led us to, 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 to publish papers in the spring and then the book was the fact that when we started getting signals early January of something going wrong, we did not rely at all on all these organizations and plans. Uh, instead, we sort of, well, we, the French government instead uh, sort of set up an, an alternative system uh, to manage the, the crisis. Mm. Uh, and this is this is part of the, of, of the first, the, the puzzle that led to the book. Now, why did they do this? Why did they create new organizations? So, for instance, early January, the Ministry of Health activates its own crisis center, but does mm. not activate the pandemic plan. So it decides it wants to keep things into its own hands. Hmm. Um, and uh, does not activate uh, the, the, the emergency management system either. So it's only based on the Ministry of Health. And then in February, when things start getting a little bit, uh, a bit uh, signals start getting a bit stronger, the government creates in an, uh, a task force. And the French word for this is task force, <laughs> which is intriguing. Uh, interministerial task force to coordinate actions of all the ministries. But this task force is based within the Ministry of Health, which is also very surprising. And uh, and actually this task force puzzled many actors because they didn't know why this was created. And they spent most of their time actually just figuring out how to work together. Uh, and they, most of their task at the time was counting masks. Um, and then, and we'll come back on this later, but but then when, when, when early March, it became clear that there was a major pandemic going on, then uh, the, minister, the government created a scientific council to advise the president and the prime minister. And this for us was, is a big, big, big surprise because instead of relying on the uh, set of agencies, public health agencies that were there that should be, have been uh, involved in managing the crisis, the president chose to create his own scientific council on the side with no direct link or relation mm. to the agencies to provide uh, its own advice. And then finally, uh, finally, the, when when the crisis management center was activated on March 17, the first day of the lockdown, uh, immediately this organization was supplemented by other new organizations that sort of took parts of the job and, and were in charge of coordination. So we never really uh, applied the, the plans as they had been set up uh, for, for for managing such a crisis, which is really for us uh, the, the part of the puzzle. I would, let me just follow up with uh, something, and maybe Patrick, I'll bring you in on this, to understand a little bit about the bureaucracy. Um, in the United States, the higher ranking positions are political appointees. And then there's a, a, a longstanding, um, what our current president, outgoing president has called a deep state, which many of us are very happy about because it's a professional bureaucracy of people who might work in emergency management or in public health over their career or over a long part of their career. But there is, we've seen a strong set of difficulties in the United States that, that urge to fire career experts and replace them with the political appointees in our emergency management bureaucracy has shown itself to be really problematic in this disaster. So I wanted to get a sense of that in France. How deep do you go into these agencies when you find career experts versus the issue of political appointment? sure. Yeah, I can I, I can also answer on that one. Mm -hmm. um, Worked a lot on agencies. Uh, the, yeah. the, the people there, the, the heads of these agencies, and and, and they're they're, they're nominated, they're 
named by the government, but they're not political appointees in the sense that they have no political background. These are people who are mostly experts. So they're, they're chosen by the government, but they have no political affiliations. So I think that's probably one big, a big difference with the, with the, yeah, with the U.S. situation. Difference. let's talk a little bit more then about uh, about what happened. We'll, we'll get to the lockdown in a minute, but coming back to this um, really provocative insight, you know, that you said that in, in the secretariat and then the president's office, all of a sudden they start creating alternative bureaucracies in the midst of the pandemic. Why? Yes. Our, our book, to, to make it clear, is ask questions and raise issues, and, and we provide hypotheses, but we, we don't provide definitive conclusions. So we, we draw on the literature, on the analysis of decisions in crisis, for, for instance, we, we use a lot uh, some works on the Katrina uh, management, on the uh, even the, the Cuban. Uh, the, Cuban Missile Crisis uh, from Graham Allison and other uh, historian work. And uh, we draw on, on this literature and we also conducted uh, some empirical work and we, we conducted mainly 40 interviews and now we are more 60, but definitely we, we, we continue this. This is an ongoing empirical work, but, but still, so I'm very conscious, uh, cautious about uh, hypotheses, but I will formulate some ones, some, some of them. Uh, so first one, the, the flu pandemic plan may not have been activated because the experts did not believe the threat was serious enough. Uh, and when it became serious in early March in France, then it was too late uh, to, to activate the pandemic plan. All that was left was what we call the white plan, I don't know if it's, it's the same uh, uh, name in, in, in uh, <clears throat> the United States, but white plan uh, are helpful to deprogram the surgeries, to stop the surgeries mm. uh, in order to leave the intensive care units. And they need it at that time because they were overflowed. And uh, so, you know, that surgeries bring new patients to, to intensive care units. And so we have to stop surgery. So, the white plan was useful for this, and it was also useful to recall professionals who were on holidays at that time in February, and also to mobilize the health reserve. Uh, but it, what is interesting is that the white plan in France is mainly designed to receive patients in emergencies such as uh, uh, terrorist attacks or natural disasters, but not for pandemic. Hmm. So it's, these white plans um, do not prepare professionals uh, to receive, for instance, contagious patients, how to organize themselves to, to receive and to, uh, uh, to select patients and to detect them. So it was, uh, uh, and they were not planned to welcome them in the middle or long term for a pandemic. So it was uh, quite a mistake. But another, so that's the first hypothesis. The first one so relates to the, Underestimation of the of the seriousness. 
pandemics. But another hypothesis, and um, it relates to, to what Olivier told us, it's about uh, uh, <clears throat> about our often organizational nature. So activating plants, and it's 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 very uh, interesting in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is the hands of decision makers. And if you go back to the book of Alison, we see that uh, Kennedy is still struggling with plan, and it's uh, it tries to, to to figure out and McNamara and and Robert. Mm -hmm. So and so we we put the hypothesis, and we we we've got some 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 informal and some interviews that seems to 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 confirm this hypothesis that to to the flu pandemic assumes the activation of the interministerial missile crisis, as Olivier mentioned, and uh, and uh, which makes all sorts of other actors and institutions get on the train of decision making. Mm. And, uh, and uh, this can be seen as factors that limit the scope of the room of maneuver for Emmanuel Macron, who wanted to, to take a direct control on this pandemic. So it's, uh, it's about hyper-centralization. And furthermore, um, it would complicate the decision-making process since it would involve the cooperation between the Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Health. And both ministries do not cooperate very well in general, and the Ministry of Health wanted to take control in this crisis. So this is one also a political hypothesis for the, the the, 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 for not activating the flu pandemic and activating the, the, the white plan that was not as uh, uh, constraining for, for decision makers as, as a, a pandemic uh, plan. Uh, and last but not least, uh, there is a mistrust expressed at the highest level of the state for the management carried out by central administration in crisis situations. Uh, and in particular, civil security. Uh, in particular, following the management of the Irma storm, I don't know if you, it was very important in France because it was uh, devastating for for uh, for some areas, and uh, and it was deemed calamitous by the president and the prime minister, and so they were very uh, uh, distrustful towards the civil security and all the administration of, of the management of the crisis. So these are some hypotheses about uh, why these plans were not uh, ad uh, activated. It's interesting. I mean, those men, uh, some of those um, hypotheses, they're all fascinating and they ring very true. I mean, the idea of a ministerial competition um, is something we might expect in in disaster or even in non-disaster times. I'm particularly interested in, maybe you could say a little bit more about Macron's role and the desire of an executive to mm. sort of reframe a disaster as something that cannot be really managed well according to the existing structures. Mm. Um, can you elaborate on that part of it a little bit? Because um, that's been a feature that we've seen in mm. countries that have done well with this, I think. Um, maybe South Korea and Singapore, but also in countries that have done very poorly with this, like the United States and Brazil. There seems to be some elaboration of executive power happening right now that's worth comparability, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, in the case of Macron, I mean, there are several, several elements. I mean, uh, uh, Patrick mentioned the, the, the distrust towards the civil protection. 
after the mismanagement of Irma Hurricane and the French Antilles. Uh, this was, I mean, this this sort of led him to distrust. But but, but Macron has always been distrustful of the highest of, of central administrations of bureaucracies. I mean, he has. I mean, it's interesting. But he also talks about a deep state in France, and he is also mm -hmm. he always believes that the French administration is resisting any form of reform. So he has very limited trust in his own administration, uh, even though he is himself a high civil servant. So this is sort of paradoxical. Uh, and uh, and so he was really careful. I mean, he was really worried at the beginning of the crisis that, that if he relied too much on existing bureaucracies and organizations, they would impose their own solutions. They would impose their their, their procedures, but it was, they would also introduce their conflicts, the conflicts between the Ministry of Health and Interior, for instance, he would have to manage that. He didn't want to have all these problems. So he sort of decided to have to create his own organization to have to be more, more free in his way of managing the, 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 the crisis. And, and this has continued until now. Uh, nowadays, the decisions are all taken in a, in a special council for defense and security. And this council for defense and security was not at all designed for crisis management. It designs in case of wars. Uh, uh, but this council uh, gives him uh, much more freedom in managing politically the crisis than he would be have than he would be able to do if he had to rely on his own bureaucracy and administration. So I he think has that the, yeah, that's fascinating. And does he has he had to deviate um, from existing uh, some sort of uh, precedents of policy or even? law at this time to take those actions or the system is built to allow the executive to be more assertive in this as you said with a war um there's a lot of latitude for the executive in many countries well i mean on, on march on march 12th when macron for the first time spoke to the french population on the crisis he, he, he called it a war and he, he used the war metaphor and ever since then he's been using that that, that image so Yes, he. Ha I mean, the French system is is very centralized around the president. So, I mean, the, legally, what he's been doing is is acceptable. I mean, there's no there's no issue of illegality or anti constitutionality. It's possible. It was just not designed to be that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the lockdown then, because maybe that's also a bit of a clue. These yeah. extraordinary powers do put pressure uh, on organizations, particularly uh, if if there's some. And as you said earlier, it's really interesting, Patrick, also that um, you, maybe to follow the plan, you bring too many people along and it slows the process down. And when you can start to see the death toll rising, that's politically unacceptable and un unsustainable. So let's talk about the lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, don't, we identify different sets of conditions and I will start and, and we will follow up. But <clears throat> the first set of conditions relates to what I just mentioned, and we may qualify them, are organizational. So the lack of activation of the pandemic plan, the delay in activating the interministerial crisis management mechanism, the appropriation of the crisis by the Ministry of Health at the expense of, uh, of the Ministry of Interior, um, uh, the mistrust of the health agency. So it led to the creation of an independent body, the Scientific Council. Uh, with a strong medical focus, uh, and uh, I will come back uh, later. And it must be added, and this is fundamental, uh, that we identify what we call the phenomenon of organizational drift, to use a famous concept uh, by Diane Vaughan about uh, analysis of the challenger accident, because we, 
we saw that <clears throat> the, the French state found itself without sufficient mass capacity at the end of February, and it was a surprise for, for, for itself because they, they, they thought that they had this capacity. Uh, and uh, we, again, we put the empathy that, that something has to do with organizational drift. So more and more, there was a, 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 a drift from a priority on, on, on pandemic in the, in the 1990s, after the, the SARS, after the MERS-CoV and so on. And more and more, there have been a drift toward priority toward uh, terrorist risk at the expense of pandemic. And, uh, and uh, there was also a change in the principle to, 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 uh, to, for, for, mask, um, for, for mask monitoring. And uh, at the end of February, nobody knows inside the, the, the government who was in charge of mask. Uh, was it an health agency? What is hospital? What is, and so that's why we, we, we put some emphasis about uh, organizational drift. The, the other mechanism we uh, it draws from from the work of François de Dieu, who is uh, another author and who worked on uh, on the uh, hurricane in 1999 in um, in uh, in France, and he identified a mechanism he calls a treacherous a treacherous risk uh, yes. reference to to uh, um, to um, uh, to Goffman. Sorry, thank you. Uh, and it seems that it's a risk that seems to be known and that seems to be controllable, but at the end it appeared as uncontrollable. And in the French case, it's very mm -hmm. striking because all the experts, and we, we look back to, to their testimonies at the end of January, they say, don't worry. Effectiology uh, say, don't worry. We manage the SARS, we manage the MERS-CoV, we manage H1N1, we will manage uh, the, the COVID. It don't, so maybe it will be a, a challenge, but we'll do it. And so it's a, a kind of overconfidence because the fundamental thing is that they didn't notice or they didn't take into account enough the things that um, they should not rely only on symptomatic patients. And there was mm. a silent spread that was going on. And they, they identified this too late at the end of February with the first death in France. It was in the north of Paris, in the region Hauts-de-France, in Creil. And then they realized that maybe it was too late. And then there was some, some kind of, of panic. And the second set of conditions, and then I will move the floor to, to Olivier, it's a, a cognitive kind to, to explain the lockdown. Because the, the scientific council who advised the president to lock down the country was really medically oriented. Two influential members of this council were, were doctors from one of the reference hospitals on the front line, which at the time of the decisions, was overwhelmed with very, very serious cases. And, and they were frightened by the situation because the, the patients come to the hospitals in an awful uh, situation. And uh, it, it reinforced the dominant cognitive framework that conceived of the epidemic as a medical problem where the sickest must first be cared for intensive care, uh, 
maybe at the expense of other health situations, uh, public health situations, and we'll come back uh, later on it. Olivia, do you want to add to to that? Yeah, I mean, the the lockdown is really, of course, is, is, is an intriguing uh, uh, decision because I, it wasn't planned for. I mean, it was in, none of the the, the 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 food pandemic plan did not have that measure uh, amongst the different solutions that to be applied in case of a pandemic. Uh, we had a we had a we in France we have a smallpox plan that was revised last year, which also does not plan for a lockdown. So this was a totally new, uh, totally new uh, uh, solution, uh, which had where well, it wasn't planned for. Never had never been tested. We had no knowledge about its effects, both mm. its effectivity, but also its its side effects. Mm. So, uh, so, uh, so we really try to understand where where this came from, and we still have to work on it. But, but the hypothesis is, is basic. I mean, it has to do with the fact that this. In the book, we 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 use the the the, the notion of frame the coined by by uh, Lee Clark and Sharon Chess of, of an elite panic. Yeah, yeah. Not of there is an elite panic. March 12, the authorities and the, ex the president and his, and his government and the experts realized that the models they'd been working on, uh, the, the models from Imperial College, but also the models from Institut Pasteur in France, with you know with the different waves and, and which they hadn't given too much credit for uh, up to then, were actually becoming real in the hospitals, the, the, in particular the main Parisian hospitals. Uh, which were which were the, 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 the top 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 hospitals in this domain were being overwhelmed, and then so it, it becomes clear on March 12 that, that as Patrick said, there's no, there's no time anymore. We must do something immediately. Macron is supposed to have said that, that on March 12, if we don't do something very quickly in a week, we're all gone, meaning there'll be so many people dead that there will be a revolution or something equivalent. So there is this idea that they must act immediately. And uh, as, a, as a president of the Scientific Council himself says, there was, the lockdown was the only possible solution. Uh, and, it had been, and so, of course, it had been, it been, had been undertaken in China, had been undertaken in Italy. Uh, so there were precedents. Um, they had also, I mean, uh, the, the, some of the members of the Scientific Council had worked in developing countries where this had been applied. So they had some knowledge about it. Uh, but still, I mean, it's in, in the end, it is uh, members, people who participated in that meeting, particularly members from the from the, of the government, were very reluctant to to lock down because I mean, it's something that just was not at all familiar, and uh, nobody knew what the consequences would be, you know. Um, and and this is where uh, what Patrick was saying before is very important. I mean, the fact that we didn't rely on the plans and the and the on the agents, the agents, dedicated agencies meant that we could invent a whole totally new solution uh, without relying on existing options like quarantines or tracing or isolation or just closing schools. We could rely on something totally new. Um, and and this, is, this, is what, uh, this is what happened. And last point on this, I mean, Macron, when he decides to, to, to follow the scientific council's advice, uh, is, also, is also in mind what is happening elsewhere in Europe. 
Right. And he has the feeling that he must do something. He must act very strongly if he wants to be able to show that France is taking this very seriously and, is, and wants to be seen as a strong government protecting its population. So there is an element also of mimetism or mimicry with, with, with this happening in Italy, also in Spain. Um, and so he's all, he also has in mind his international, the international reputation of France in, the, in this moment. I see. Mm. Okay. That's a useful point of, of comparison, I think, and we'll probably come back to that. Well I want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about the pandemic in France and the lockdown decision with Patrick Castel and Olivier Boratz. And I want to follow up with that. I mean, thank you for that set of observations because I think we have, even people like myself who's been following this closely, um, it's easy to lapse into an, a sort of an inevitability around um, the steps that must be taken in the pandemic, as if we know what those are. And I think you're slowing us down and talking about, first of all, the steps that were available to be taken and not, and then the rapid decision taken, in, if I'm understanding right, within five days mm. to take very dramatic set of steps which had never been modeled. I, I wanna follow up on just one, two parts of that. One first, are you saying then, and particularly, Patrick, you were pointing out the emphasis of the medical mm. in the decision-making, mm. the overwhelming of the ICUs, which is, by the way, terrifying. Yes. yes. And I think any, any elected official who sees what we were seeing in these hospitals yes. um, around the world, I don't blame them for wanting to take action. Yeah. However, that leaves out uh, discussions around uh, impact on the economy, impact mm. mental health, yeah. How, how we could talk the rest of this discussion about the many other kinds of impacts that flow from a lockdown, which then, as we learned in the United States, there's a sort of a political feedback mechanism that then sometimes if you commit to the lockdown, it, it opens up a possibility for political counter reaction, which is hard in itself to manage. I, I know that hasn't been quite the case in France as it's been in the US. But it, I, it has been part of your discourse, I think. Mm. So let me ask you about that part first. In some of the existing plans, like your flu plan, were issues around the economy, um, schooling, uh, elder care, those broader concerns, were those part of the discussion? In other words, they could have stuck to those plans and maybe had a, a way to control the pandemic without going to this new idea of the lockdown. Well, when when they they could have if they activated the plan in January, which uh -huh. interviews in, in our ministries, uh, people said, but they were really surprised. Many ministries were really surprised that we didn't activate because activating the plan in January would have meant beginning to anticipate and work on different scenarios and maybe have a more staged approach to this. But by not activating the plan and there are reasons behind this non-activation of the plan. I mean, uh, that are also interesting because they, they also relate to bureaucratic battles and tensions between the Ministry of Health and Civil Defense, for instance. Uh, and so behind this decision, 
uh, under certain reasons. But this then means that when, as Patrick said, when March 12, they realize that, that, that the, 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 the tsunami is there. Mm. Uh, there is no possibility for a staged approach. Um, and at this moment, what is strike, of course, what is at this moment, they, they know that there will be consequences, but they don't know which consequences, because as I said, we've never tested this before, and no, no one has, and there are no scientific publications on this, so we don't know, but they know that. Now, what is striking in the French case is that uh, we didn't set up anything to try to monitor these consequences. We just sort of experienced hmm. them day by day, but there was no effort, and this is something which we still puzzles us, is why no one tried to organize something to, to sort of monitor uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, the consequences on the economy, <clears throat> the social consequences, the health consequences, all that. So, so now we we have some um, we have some hindsight on this. We can we can understand better. But at the moment, there was clearly the idea that there would be consequences, but given the 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 the, the magnitude of the wave about to uh, go over the, the French hospitals, if we don't do something now immediately. We will lose the French hospitals and we will lose the whole healthcare system. So that's the way it was really framed. And, and, and an important part of this is the fact that members of the scientific council were precisely working in those Parisian hospitals that were the hardest hit. Right. So they were seeing the crisis on, uh, immediately in front of them. And as you said, it was hard not to say, do something at that point. So the other consequences were, were, were irrelevant in the face of something which was about to, to overtake the, the, all the French hospitals. Now, if you had had in that committee uh, uh, medical uh, health, uh, health professionals from maybe from the south of France, from Bordeaux, from Toulouse, from Marseille, maybe they wouldn't have had the same position because their their hospitals were not as hard hit as the Parisian right. hospital. Let me follow up with a second part of that that you were alluding to, and that's has to do with sort of cross border. Um, let's frame it two ways: cross border cooperation and cross border rivalry. Um, and, you know, so what was the government learning, taking from uh, what was happening in Italy, what was happening in Spain, what was happening in, in China? And I guess it might be worth mentioning the EU to the extent that the EU had some sort of capacity to facilitate sharing of information within different countries. How does the world outside of the French border begin to shape the French policy making apparatus in those days around the lockdown and just after? Uh, it's, it, we don't have a lot of information on that for the moment. I mean, mm. well, 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 there is one important point of information is the fact that the the, the health professionals, in particular, the, the people in, uh, how do you say, reanimateur? Intensivists. Intensivists. Mm. French intensivists were discussing with their Italian colleagues uh, around the end of February, and their Italian colleagues were telling the French, their French colleagues, that the situation was really bad in Italy, and that they had a hard time understanding why France was not doing anything on this pandemic, while they were already facing very serious situations. And French intensivists and Italian intensivists are, uh, are very close; they work very closely together. They, they admire each other very much. They, they consider themselves to be amongst the best in the world. So. When they tell the intensivists, we're telling the French colleagues, you know, this is really a bad situation. You know, why aren't you doing anything? The French intensivists started saying, well, maybe we should be doing something about this. And they, this is when it started. Uh, they started mobilizing and preparing and, and thinking about something much bigger. Otherwise, uh, there's not been a whole lot of cooperation, to our knowledge, across countries. I mean, we, and and it's been mostly uh, yes, border border closures, 
competition to, to, to buy masks. There's been some cooperation to send patients to Germany uh, from the eastern France because the, one of the hardest regions in, in France hit in the beginning was the east of France with the German border. So we did send some patients to Germany. But otherwise, for the moment, we haven't seen any, we haven't uh, noticed anything sp uh, particular in terms of coordination, cooperation, uh, or even the EU. There's been a lot of mimicry, as you said, a lot of mimetism across borders. I mean, and it's, 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 been going on ever since, you know. Uh, we, we now the recent measures in terms of curfews and then lockdowns were justified on the basis that everyone else was doing it, so let's do it also. So there is this type of hmm, uh, adopting other other countries' practices, but we haven't seen a lot of cooperation or coordination for the moment. Well, now we may just had the, the, the Sweden the Swedish the Swedish model that act as a as a counter. Example: right. the, the government and the experts say, "Look, the Swedish uh, have not uh, locked down, and they do it very badly uh, at, in spring, during springtime." And mm -hmm. and it was like a, a rhetoric to 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 confirm and to to justify what they, mm -hmm. they decided. And uh, uh, now, of course, uh, the figures are are a bit, bit less good for France in comparison with Sweden. So we, we will see what. Uh, but it, it's interesting to see that they they compare with uh, <clears throat> Italy and Spain. They, everybody has locked down, and they chose to to show Sweden uh, to blame Sweden for for not taking this this kind of uh, strategy. Let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the more unexpected um, or positive things you might have observed um, organizationally. Um, cooperation where you might not have expected to find it, maybe in the healthcare sector. Uh, innovation, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, even private organizations right, rising up you know, to supply uh, personal protective equipment. Hmm. Yeah. Tell us what you're observing in that regard. The, the the most striking thing we we noticed in this in this case, of course, there have been some innovation, and we know so that, for instance, for mass protection, there have been some uh, uh, some cooperation between uh, local firms and uh, and hospitals to provide them with with uh, uh, mass protection and so on, so or respirators, and so there there have been some innovation. Uh, there have been also a creation of what they call the COVID center, which was uh, in the primary care, uh, an organization and cooperation between primary uh, care physicians to, to organize uh, the screening, but it was quite marginal because uh, the main uh, screening uh, processes took place inside hospital. But the most striking thing is about the cooperation uh, inside hospitals. Because for those who know, <laughs> as, uh, uh, we 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 have worked a lot on the the, the the work in the hospitals, and hospitals is a place of conflict, as most organizations. And uh, there are many conflicts between specialties. There are many conflicts between uh, physicians and management. Uh, there are hierarchical conflict and so on. And the, the thing is that. Uh, Few weeks before the crisis, there was a major um, uh, 
conflict inside hospitals between the management and uh, and physicians and and uh, nurses about the management of hospitals and so the pandemic arrived at the very bad time for hospitals they lack some protection masks they lack some resources and at the end they manage the crisis and the the, 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 the number and so how can we explain the this conflict in the media and of course also the representatives of professionals explained that it was the ethics of health professionals, the will to save others, the altruistic commitment and so on and so forth. Of course, this is important <laughs> because it, it, it explains that they, they continue to work, but it doesn't explain the cooperation because uh, the ethics doesn't disappear in normal time, and in normal times there are some uh, some competition between the, and so we we at the end we 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 explain we, we identify four conditions to explain this relative uh, cooperation of care professionals within hospital. First, the doctors took the lead of the organization inside hospitals at the expense of the management. So the management say, okay, to, to reorganize hospitals in a crisis, you will do it. You will say what kind of beds have to be changed uh, from uh, normal care to intensive care. And uh, so, so first conditions, doctors uh, were free to organize themselves. Secondly, there were no limits on the budgets. And Emmanuel Macron, uh, during a discourse, say, quoi qu'il en coûte, whatever the price, and so everybody inside hospitals knew, understood that there was no limited budget. Thirdly, they, they eliminate the non-urgent activities, as we mentioned before. So they stop uh, what are the issue at the earth of conflicts in normal situations. So they have been put into brackets. Surgeons stop <laughs> to practice surgeries. Mm. Uh, and finally, there was no longer any competition to capture a rare resource the patients because the patients were everywhere. So they, they didn't compete for, for access to, to patients. Uh, uh, and uh, as we, we understood also, so we interview a lot, uh, a lot of, of intensivists and we, and they say, well, they say that finally uh, COVID patients are in a way, uh, uh, they, they look, the same they, they don't they, there is no complex patients related to covid in comparison with other uh, with other uh, um, with other health problems they have to take care of intensively said covid patients it's not very difficult it's of course it's stressful it's awful because there are many deaths but it's not very technical when you understood some mm. basic things then you can manage it so it, there was not not only competition to to have the what doctors say what the most interesting patients related to COVID they they look about the same mm. and so if these four conditions are met in any organizations whatever its nature there is good chance that the actors will cooperate and the thing is that they cooperate on the care but they compete fiercely on clinical research because there was a lack of resources. And, and at the end, they are quite disappointed as they, they, they collectively manage these crucial issues about clinical research because they competed with each other. So 
but they are the same the same people who, who who cooperate on an issue eat on another. I have to say, I'm very drawn to the way you frame this, which is that you start with the idea that these experts, even though they work in the same building, are going to compete and disagree with each other and and be at each other's throats. So the ex so the challenge is to explain cooperation. <laughs> And of course, we you know, people who like yourselves who studied disaster and um, and sort of society and disaster, we make a lot of the pro-social response. And I and I wonder if that hasn't been a little bit too overdone. Uh, that we would expect that people will help each other in disaster. And that's kind of treated like a, a given, a given, a rule in disaster, but I think you're showing us how useful it is to problematize that from the get-go and to really not just assume sort of basic things about human behavior and disaster and, and then be surprised when they don't don't work. I, I, I'm looking forward to reading more about that aspect of the of the work you're doing. Let's, um, we're almost up on time, but I wanna just follow up on one, <laughs> one thing or bring us up to date. So you're under lockdown now. So they do have a model now in a sense, the recent one. So the model from March, tell us about what was learned from lockdown number one that seems to be informing lockdown number two. Uh, well, the, in terms of what we've learned, well, the, I think one of the main lessons is uh, about the consequences of the lockdown. So we've learned that the consequences of the first lockdown were uh, monumental both economically, socially, and in terms of healthcare. So in French hospitals now, the second lockdown is very different from the first lockdown because surgeons, but also all the other health professionals in hospitals, refuse to sacrifice other patients for COVID patients. Uh, there, there's been some deprogramming, but not as much as in the spring. And there's really been a resistance on the part of health professionals to continue treating other diseases, other health problems, uh, because we already have figures on the consequences of the first lockdown on cancer treatments, on uh, screening for cancer or for AIDS or other diseases. We also have data on psychological diseases, I mean, lots of public health issues, and it's, it's, it's very worrying for the next few years. So this is the first difference is that we, hospitals are trying to, to, to continue their normal operations and at the same time uh, managing COVID patients. Uh, and this is creating tensions within the hospitals. So compare, compared to the first, uh, the first lockdown, the second lockdown is much more stressful in the hospitals because there are more tensions mm -hmm. because they don't want to. Uh, at, at the governmental level, we've seen the economic and social consequences. And so I think this explains why the government was so took so long in deciding as a second lockdown, right. waited very long, and then abruptly, once again, decided to lock down because they had seen the economic consequences. And the fact that the schools remain open, for instance, is a very important difference because we saw that. We know that if you close down the schools, you're basically closing down the economy once again. Right. And they didn't want to do that. So even though some experts were calling for closing down schools again, the government decided not to do that because they knew that it would have major impacts. Uh, now, what hasn't changed is the fact that we still take decisions without any anticipation of preparation. So we, when Macron decides for the curfew, decides a curfew on October 17th, and then a lockdown on October 28th, this is a very abrupt decision. His services have not been preparing for this. They've not been working on this. So the, 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 all the ministries have to immediately uh, adapt themselves to this new decision to which have not been prepared. So this is 
this lack of anticipation is, is sort of is mm. is 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 not has not been changed. And the, the the other difference is, as I said before, is that now decisions are really uh, uh, staged in this uh, Council for Defense and Security, which has become a very central piece of of of, of the decision making process. While the the crisis management system is really, I mean, on the side and doesn't play a major role anymore. Uh, so so. This, yeah, so so the the, the lessons. I mean, there, there there some lessons have been drawn, but the worrying part is that we have not learned in terms of how to anticipate and how to prepare for these decisions, and they're still taken very abruptly and very top down. Uh, there is still very little. The, the, another major, another similarity is the fact that we still do not take it, take into account the implementation of these decisions. So there is still very little information from the services that will be in charge of these decisions that they can inform the decision makers uh, and this creates also uh, lots of lots of problems so one of the paradoxes we want to work on in, in our current research project is comparing these two lockdowns and these two state these two waves if you want to use that metaphor mm -hmm. and because in the first lockdown uh, surprisingly uh, organizations did not collapse there was no organizational collapse uh, we didn't we didn't notice organizations being suddenly yeah, just simply overwhelmed and they adapted the state services state bureaucracies actually uh, were quite uh, effective in adapting to this new situation and improvising but this is very different to the second wave where there's less capacity to 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 improvise and adapt because what patrick was describing for the hospitals is true for many other state bureaucracies i mean there was a sort of lifting of no of normal constraints that allowed for more cooperation these mm. normal constraints have been brought back in and so all these organizations now have right. to manage both their normal activities and uh, the, the pandemic and its consequences. And this is creating tensions. And so there is a possibility of some organizations collapsing in the second wave, uh, paradoxically, even though the second wave is less strong than the first wave. Uh, uh, there is, there is a, the, it's creating more tensions on organizations, paradoxically, uh, because of this, uh, of, of this, of this will to return to normal while still managing a crisis. Should we call it a crisis? Even another question. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I'm so, I'm really, I mean, the model is one that everyone, uh, I'm hoping in different countries and then compar take, doing comparables across across countries is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm hoping um, that we're going to learn a lot about in this time um, is fatigue, organizational fatigue, both, and, mm -hmm. and, and we're thinking about metaphors here, the fatigue of the individual's body, but also the organizational body. Yeah. And what that means in the, in the United States, we've seen this in the midst of a transition of power in which a sort of ordinary bureaucratic fatigue of four years means you do replace people. You do bring in fresh ideas. You do bring in people who've not been working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. It matters. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure we have good you know more about this than I do. I'm not sure we have great theories about that. And, and I'm resistant to using the war metaphor for a pandemic, but I'm hard pressed to find other kinds of disasters where we do see this um, duration of time that allows us to understand organizational fatigue. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and it, I think that this is one of the points. Of, well, I mean, all the interviews we're connecting at the moment point to this problem of organizational fatigue and the fact that it's 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 harder for them to 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 improvise and to 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 find solutions to the problems they face uh and it's and, and there is i mean the lack of perspective also doesn't make it easy I mean, in the spring in the first lockdown we had a 
time frame, uh, which well shifted a bit, but still we had a time frame. In the second wave, we had, Macron gave us a few days ago a second a time frame, but it's not very it's not very clear when actually all this will end, uh, and so this also creates problem of of anticipation uh, for for, right. for individuals and organizations because they don't know how long this is going to last uh, right. and and they also know that once this crisis is over there is a social economic crisis looming behind which is Absolutely. going to be even bigger and uh, and and we don't measure, can measure the consequences and remember in 17 months we have a presidential election um which also uh, Create opportunities for, for 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 conflicts, and on top of all this, we also have uh, at the moment very important security issues in France. Uh, debates around immigration, migration. It's not a. I mean, it, this is a very um, and and even though these are different topics, they are interrelated, uh, and they tend to 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 create a climate of of of. Uh, this general distrust, which is not very helpful in, in getting out of this crisis and, and, and thinking about how do we can build our economy. So I think this is, this is, this is, uh, also, this also creates the, a lot of uh, anxiety uh, with, at individual level and organization level. I've kept you up very late for this discussion uh, and I appreciate it, but I, and I do, maybe there's just, we can close with one sort of final little uh, half a question because I want to be, bring you back in a few months and we can talk about this more, which is um, you alluded earlier to the 2003 heat wave and the deaths there and then uh, and the SARS pandemic, which like in many countries, um, you get a conflict, maybe one disaster is not enough to force a reimagining of a disaster bureaucracy, but two in rapid succession often will do it. I think that's what you described in, in France. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you're on the verge of something like that now? And I think of this because you've described this scientific council, which now seems to become an improvised, semi-permanent body, which was created and now still continues to sideline the plan. So you've got now you've got sort of rival bureaucracies to a certain degree. Yeah. Is that an inflection point for France? Do you think that scientific council will emerge as a sort of standing feature after this? I'm asking you to speculate, which is always uncomfortable for social scientists and historians, but maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, already, I mean, when Macron uh, the other day talked about the uh, vaccine program, he immediately said he was going to set up a new scientific council for the vaccination another, program. Another one. Yeah. And, 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 as, and, and there are, there is an existing council on vaccination, which could be, I mean, which is, which, whose purpose is precisely to handle these situations, but still he's creating his own separate Scientific Council. So yes, this might be something uh, a, a recurrent, a, a recurrent practice. In, in the book, we do spend a lot of time at the end uh, insisting on the fact that we don't know. I mean, and this is not just France, but we don't know how to draw lessons from crises. We don't know how to learn from these crises. I mean, that's uh, this is not specific to France. I agree, uh, but it, but in, in in the French case, there are really it's it's it's. We 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 are we we argue for 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 a revolution in the way that we try to learn from these crises and try to build more cumulative knowledge on these crises, both their origins and also the way they 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 play out. Um, and and this is and hopefully we 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 can expect some form of less not I mean lessons to be drawn, but more importantly the idea that we can learn from these crises and then that not just 
singular events happening here and there uh, out of the blue and then just we can come back to our normal way of working uh, we, we really hope uh, this is really hope wishful thinking maybe uh, that uh, this, this 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 crisis uh, it will be a, will be the opportunity to 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 sort of yes decide that we can we need to draw lessons from these situations because they are going to be more and more repetitive uh, because we do see the recurrences between the, with different past crises and that we cannot just go back to the to the normal way things work and and, and just uh, hope that the, 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 the next crisis will be will be easier to handle uh, but that this uh, yeah this requires a, a pretty pretty big revolution so it's hard it's hard to say and maybe I just add a, a quick point so we are also concerned that the current crisis since since it has been it has been framed as a medical problem of hospital capacity of intensive care mm. will not bring about lasting change in the in the area of public health because and uh, and uh, this would be a disaster another disaster because uh, the, the public health is very weak in france and since and if the only thing we we learn is that hospitals need more money, which is probably true. But if it's the only lesson, then it, we will uh, through through a very an elephant in the room. It's, it's yeah. an elephant in the room is is the weakness of the of the public health. This is the dialogue in the, in the United States around the vaccine, that <laughs> somehow you reach the techno fix of the vaccine. And the pandemic is over, and yet we don't have the medical facilities up to date that to roll out a vaccine. You don't have literally don't have the place to do the vaccine. It's somehow by isolating the problem in this highly technical way, and this is where we started our discussion. You miss the much broader field of what a disaster actually means in a society at this scale. I want to thank my guests Olivier Boraz and Patrick Castil. Uh, I learned a lot in this hour, and I do hope we can get you back um, to talk more about it as we go into the new year. And I want to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about COVID-19 in the American Midwest with Keith Mueller from the University of Iowa. So please do join me for that. And uh, Patrick and Olivier, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.